The following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. You remember magazines, I'm sure. A long time ago, in one magazine called the Saturday Evening Post, they carried an article, and maybe you remember this, uh, I've shared it before, The Seven Ages of the Married Cold. It revealed the reactions of a husband to his wife's colds during the first seven years of their marriage. And this is how it went. The first year, sugar dumpling, I'm really worried about my baby girl. You've got a bad sniffle, and there's no telling about these things with all the strep going around. I'm putting you in the hospital this afternoon for a general checkup and good rest. I know the food's lousy, but I'll be bringing your meals in from the Cheesecake Factory. I've already got it arranged with a floor attendant. That's year one. Year two, listen, darling, I don't like the sound of that cough. I've called Dr. Pleasant, and he's going to ask him to come right over here. Now you go to bed like a good girl, just for Papa. The third year, maybe you better lie down, honey. Nothing like a good little rest uh, when you feel lousy. I'll, I'll bring you something. Have you got any canned soup? The fourth year, now look, dear, be sensible. After you fed the kids, washed the dishes, and finished the floors, you better lie down. The fifth year, have you taken some aspirin or something yet? The sixth year, I wish you'd just gargle or something instead of sitting around all evening barking like a seal. The sixth, uh, the seventh year, for Pete's sake, stop sneezing. You trying to give me pneumonia? There you go. Interesting enough, every friendship, every marriage, every relationship can experience deterioration. We can experience decline. Relationships can grow cold, even our relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. When that happens to some, it reveals who we are, who they are. Like those hearts described as soils by Jesus in Matthew chapter 13, when affliction and persecution hit, they walk away from Christ. Or those filled with worry and the deceitfulness of riches turn away from Christ. The Bible warns even a few who appear hot, but then show that they're unsaved by living lukewarm. And there are other believers who would demonstrate a decline in faithfulness and a decline and lessening of their heart. Like Timothy, who was charged by Paul in 2 Timothy 1.6, For this reason, there in your outline, I remind you to kindle afresh. It's a very interesting word. It means to stir up. It's actually the imagery of taking a a fire that has grown cold and you stir it back up so that it gets hot again. He says, Timothy, stir up that gift of God. Like a fire, I want you to stir up your giftedness in your life so you grow hot again for Christ. And one of the strongest warnings of all was the church of Ephesus Super strong in doctrine, they were solid. Super discerning in truth, they were amazing. But John warns them in Revelation chapter 2 verse 4, but I have this against you, that you have left your what? Your first love. Thankfully, John continues to describe the cure to losing your first love in the very next verse, verse 5. He says, number one, therefore remember where you have fallen. Number two, repent. And number three, do the deeds you did at first. Remember when you were on fire. That's point one. Your 
passion for Christ, your evangelism, your giving, your serving, you loved others, you were on fire. Then, secondly, repent of where you are right now. Stop being complacent. Stop being indifferent. Stop delaying. Stop waiting and change directions of life. How do you do it? Number three, by doing the deeds you did at first. Turn off the TV. Put your phone down and make some time to stir up your relationship to the Lord. Study the Word and serve Christ. In other words, simply three points, all with R. One, remember. Two, repent. And three, repeat. These warnings are nothing new. You find them all throughout the Scripture, everywhere. Uh, Hosea chapter 13 warns of living complacently as a believer. Joel 2 warns of phony and fake repentance that makes no difference. And Zephaniah chapter 1 warns of becoming stagnant in heart. Is your relationship with Christ this morning committed or complacent? Is your heart stagnant or are you pursuing Christ? Are you enjoying a genuine relationship with the God you love? A commitment to obey, a dedication of service, a passion to love Christ. That is the starting place for relationships. That is the starting place for friendships. And it is the starting place for every marriage in this room. As a Christian, if your relationship with Christ is cold and complacent, so will your relationship with your spouse be in marriage. What is true for your relationship with Christ is true for your relationship with your spouse. Now, one of the difficulties in preaching God's Word on marriage is, as you sit there this morning, we can't tell, I can't tell where you're really at. I mean, which G really fits you? Is it great? Is it genial? Is it good? Is it grand? Or is it gory? Where is it? We don't know because it's really hidden to us, and it's also a matter of the heart. But when a woman marries a man, she expects him that he will change, but he doesn't. A man marries a woman expecting that she won't change, and she does. Are you at the end of your rope? Jean and I, we always compromise. I admit that I'm wrong, and she agrees with me. There you go. <laughs> when your wife says to you, honey, it's, it's not PMS, it's you you know you're in trouble, okay? <laughs> and the very church that lost its first love, Ephesus, actually has a letter in the New Testament that describes how you can recover the damaging relationships, recover from marriage that is dwindling or relationships that are faltering. So if you would, turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5 in your New Testament, please, and follow along in your outline. After a lot of prayer and discussion with my fellow elders, we're going to take a break from Galatians. It's a perfect time, too, because chapter 1 and 2 is a unit, and then chapters 3 and 4, so we'll start that in a few weeks. But we're going to concentrate God's Word on marriage. And friends, this is for widows. This is for singles. This is for divorce. This is for marriage. This is for anyone who has a friend. 
Anyone who cares about people and anyone who wants to honor Christ in their marriage. There's a great danger today. Our society is so self-consumed and everything is designed for us that sometimes we Christians begin to look at God's Word in the same manner and we apply a really warped logic. We'll say to ourselves, well, we're talking about marriage, so that's not for me. My marriage is fine, I'm not married, so therefore it's not for me. When you apply that logic to the Bible, that means, well, the Old Testament's not for you, it's for Israel. Uh, I, I mean, you know, the end of singleness, talked about in 1 Corinthians you know, 7, that's, that's for singles, not for marrieds. Or, or 2 Timothy, that's, that's for Timothy, not for us. That logic is faulty because you are to experience God's Word in its fullness. Uh, Paul described it as the whole counsel of God. Would you agree? Would you say amen to the fact that you need the whole counsel of God? Yes or no? Amen. amen. Let's forever burn that kind of thinking. No matter what the topic is, it's God's Word at this church that we're trying to unfold for you. And you need everything that the Bible says, not just some parts. So listen, this series is for anyone who has any relationship with anyone. And if you have no relationship with anyone, you really need this series, okay? So Christian marriage is what teaches us how we're to treat others. And marriage is an expression of friendship and relationship. And next to Christ, marriage is the center relationship that basically is a major part of our witness to the world. It dramatically affects the family. It dramatically affects the church of Jesus Christ. Marriage. Too many believers drift in their marriage. They they damage their friendship. And we need to understand how that happens so we can avoid it. If you're one who says, my wife and I were happy for 20 years, and then we met, you need some help. And therefore, let's read this familiar passage, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 33. It is the most extensive teaching on marriage in the entire scripture, and then we'll discover some principles in the context of this particular passage this morning that will help us to undo some of the damage that we're causing in relationships and in our marriage together. But let's read it out loud from your outline so we can read it together from the New American Standard Bible, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 33. Let's practice now. Here we go. Everyone together out loud. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is also the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. So husbands also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, one shall leave his father and mother, and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife may see to it that she respects her husband. You cannot live 
this passage, verses 22 to 33, without obeying the entire context that surrounds us. The chapters 1 and 2 and 3 and 4 and 5 and 6 of Ephesians. You can't rip it out. You can't take marriage out of the context of the Christian life or the church. You can't rip the passage out of the letter so that it basically stands alone. It never stands alone. It's always in context. To understand it, we have to understand first what Paul taught in this incredible letter, especially as it relates to friendships, relationships, and to marriage itself. Marriage is God's design. It is perfect in His plan. It is between one male and one female for life, under the promise of an unbreakable vow to God in front of witnesses, sealed by the oneness of sexual union. So turn, if you would, to chapter 1 of Ephesians, and look at God's clear declaration. He says some things in each chapter that I'm going to highlight that actually relate to relationship that are foundational to our understanding of verses 22 to 33. In Ephesians chapter 1 verse 5, he says, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according, now get this, to the kind intention of His will. Verse 9, take a look at verse 9, the very phrase there, the mystery of His will. Take a look at verse 11. The counsel of His will. God has a sovereign will. And that will is absolute. It will be accomplished. Understand, the foundational understanding of Ephesians is God's sovereignty. And He's establishing that throughout the course of this entire letter. And He's affirming it right at the get-go that God has a sovereign will. And the will is to accomplish His own glory. His own glory. And how do you know that? Well, take a look at verse 6. To the praise of the glory of His grace. Look at verse 12. See the phrase? To the praise of His glory. His sovereign will is going to accomplish verse 14. Look at verse 14. To the praise of His glory. God's glory is all that He is. It is the summation of all His attributes. And when we glorify God, we are putting His attributes, His character, on display for others to see. To glorify God is to say, I'm showing off God, His character, His attributes. That's the sovereign will, that's His plan to accomplish His glory. Now here's the key phrase, everything in life is for the glory of God. Can I hear an amen? You know it, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, whether then you eat or drink, whatever you do, do what? All to the glory of God. And FBC, you know what all means, it means what? All. That means your life, all, to the glory of God. That means your marriage, all to the glory of God. That means your friendship relationships, all to the glory of God. So, chapter 1, you damage your marriage, you damage relationships when you, chapter 1, live ignoring God's sovereign purpose for your marriage. Your friendships, your marriage, is for Him, not you. It's for Him. He died for you. He gave everything for you. Now you live for Him, His glory. And that means that marriage is for who? Him. It's not your preference. It's His glory. Your marriage is not first for your spouse. It is for God to show Him off, to put Christ on display. We somehow think, well, yeah, all to the glory of God, but my marriage is for me. No, it's for Him. It's for Him. And there's great blessing when marriage is lived for God's glory. And there's great damage when marriage ignores God's glory and becomes all about us. 
God designed marriage for His glory. He made you for His glory. He gave you your spouse for His glory. And your marriage still exists for God's what? Glory. You say, Chris, (laughs) but my spouse (laughs) is really difficult to live with. And what would Paul say to you? He would say, they're difficult so you can glorify God in an even greater way. That's why your marriage is not for your happiness, for His holiness. Your, your marriage is not for you to feel great, but for God to be seen as great. Your marriage is not merely for sexual intimacy, it's for the Savior to be shown, not to just fulfill your promises and vows that you made, but to see His promises lived out through you. To damage your marriage, all you need to do is continue in marriage thinking you deserve happiness and your spouse is present to be your main source of happiness, your main source of security, your main source of fun, or your main source of paying the bills so you can have fun. You might be shocked by what your spouse is like now that you are married. But remember what Jesus said in Matthew 19, verse 6. Now you know this verse. It's not in your outline. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man, what? And the key phrase there is what God has joined together. God put you together. God gave you that woman. God gave you that man. Some of you are going, thanks. God is the one who put you together. He wanted you to be husband and wife, married for His glory, for Him. You ever had a tough professor? A tough teacher? The toughest ones are the only classes now that I remember. The toughest ones. The ones that made me work for it. Dr. MacArthur, Dr. Mueller, no relation. Dr. Kirk taught me the most. I grew. I changed. They impacted me. I lived more for God's glory because of the the pressure and the instruction that they gave me. It's the same in marriage. The tougher the spouse, the greater the glory that can be displayed. And if you ignore God's sovereign purpose, you'll do damage to your marriage. You've got to start thinking that these relationships and this marriage relationship is for Him. It's for him. You damage your marriage when you live, number two, or chapter two, minimizing your sinfulness and your desperate need for God's grace. Minimizing your sinfulness. Now, before Paul teaches on marriage in chapter five, he's already taught the Ephesians and now us in chapter two of the necessity of the gospel of grace and that you were in a position of desperation when you. God intervened. You were dead, and God made you what? Alive. So take a look at these verses, verses 1 through 5. I'll read them. You read silently. It says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit which is now working in the sons of disobedience. Wow. And among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh, of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Children of wrath. Wow. We were in a bad place. Verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, He made us what? 
alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. In order to enjoy a relationship with God in chapter 2 and a biblical marriage in chapter 5, you must first be transformed. Transformed from dead to alive. You need to be resurrected from the dead. Verses 1 through 3, what's he say? He says, You were dead in your sins. You were totally conformed to this fallen world. You were completely in agreement with Satan, totally fleshed out in your sin with a corrupt nature that could do nothing but oppose the will of God and rebel from God's will. And because of that, you can't and won't enjoy God's perfect design for marriage unless the husband and wife are both transformed, made alive by salvation in Christ. That's Christian marriage. Both transformed by Christ. You were dead, but you must be made what? Alive. If you have not been born again, then you cannot live the Christian life, nor will you enjoy the real blessings that God has designed in a marital relationship. You will not be in tune with each other until you are in Christ together. But once saved... If you are truly in Christ, then you know what a sinner you are and how much you need Christ's grace every single day. Listen, if you're saved, you know what a sinner you are. Can I hear an amen to that? You do. Otherwise, you're not saved. That's one of the first prerequisites is you recognize that I am condemned for my sin. Couples who don't talk to each other, deal with one another, think about and engage with their spouse without a huge awareness of their own sinfulness will do damage to their marriage. Let me say it again. Hear me. Those couples who engage with their spouse without a huge awareness of their own sinfulness will damage their marriage. You must realize, even when you're right, that much about you is wrong before heaven. You have to recall how messed up you really were, really are, and really will be until heaven. You have to remind yourself that unless it's God's Word that you're actually speaking, God's Word that you're actually living by the power of the Spirit, you have to basically remember that anything else outside of that filter, God's Word and God's Holy Spirit, anything you might say, anything you might do, is not fully the truth. It's tainted. You must not minimize your sinfulness and your desperate need for grace every single day. Marriages. You cannot start thinking you can trust your own judgment. What does Proverbs 3, 5 say? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Say it with me. Do not lean on your own understanding. Don't start thinking you understand yourself and don't start thinking you understand your spouse or your friends. You need a heavy dose of humility, Christian. A heavy dose of dependence. A heavy dose of brokenness to make a marriage work for the glory of God. And by the way, that's any friendship, any relationship. If you're one of those husbands... (laughs) You know, you have to say something really important to your wife, so you grab both her hands and you look her in the eye, but the real reason is you don't want her to slap you. You need this, okay? (laughs) You do damage to your marriage when you think you're right 
and they're wrong. You, you might be mostly right, they might be mostly wrong, but no one's pure in this. You think you understand, but they don't. You think you see the problem and they're blind. Do not minimize your capacity for sin and your desperate need for God's grace. Now, it's true. Innocent mistakes will often be made. I accidentally handed my wife a glue stick when she wanted chapstick, and she's still not talking to me. Okay, so... Oh man, you need God's grace to be saved, and you need God's grace to live every single day. Can I hear an amen to that? And you need to speak by, live by, and be humbled by God's grace every day in your marriage, in your friendships, to work God's way for His glory and for your good. You damage your marriage and relationships when you live chapter 3, overlooking the incredible love of God to fill your life. Overlooking the incredible love of God. You, you can't live Ephesians chapter 5 without actually living Ephesians chapter 3. And this chapter is about how Jew and Gentile are one in Christ. And listen, if a Jew and Gentile could be one in Christ, so can a husband and a wife be one in Christ. Very important truth we're going to unfold in the next couple of weeks. In fact, chapter 3 celebrates the riches of God's glory, the riches of that, that, that strengthen you. His glory, His character strengthens you. And then he adds, His love will satisfy your greatest need. It'll fill your deepest hole. It'll resolve your most difficult past. It'll brave the most harshest trial. And it'll soothe your deepest disappointment. Christ's love will do that, not your spouse, not your friend's. Couples do damage to their marriage when they look to their spouse to meet their deepest needs. Couples hurt their marriages with expectations of their mates that only God can fill. What does Paul teach God will do for the Christian? Read verses 16 through 19 in chapter 3 slowly because it's so rich. Look at this. That He would grant you According to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with what? Power through His Spirit in the inner person, the inner man inside of you, that hole in your heart, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up with what? all the fullness of God. You say, Chris, why is it that I don't experience that? Why am I not experiencing the fullness of God? The answer is simple. Because you're not pursuing Christ first. You don't pray. You're not studying the Word. Sunday's the only time you're in the Bible. You're not fellowshipping with the saints. You're not discipled or being discipled. You're not waiting on the Lord to fill you with His fullness. You're not filled with the Spirit. You're not meditating on His love to the point where you experience His love. You're not depending on Him to be your satisfaction. You're not looking to Christ first. You look for and expect that deep love, that fullness, that strength to come from a spouse or your friend group. 
or something else. Listen, our culture is making its way into Christendom. And that flat screen, those video games, that iPhone is distracting you from Christ. It's not evil in and of itself. It's that it's taking the place of Christ. It's very simple in 1 John. If you love the world, you don't love the Father. If you don't love the Father, you love the world. It's pretty simple. And that's where a lot of believers are at right now. They're so distracted with those things that they don't know how to carry on a relationship. And relationships are waning in our culture when we actually have the ability to put Christ on display in our relationships in a way that makes us super attractive. But understand, when you don't get it from the Lord, then you react to friends and marriage in such a way as you damage the relationship. Someone ate candy every day, and that's all they ate. They'd never appreciate the incredible taste of a steak or a sandwich or a burrito, moussaka, Thai chicken, shish kebab. Plus, they'd also grow very unhealthy. Couples do damage in their marriage by looking for candy from their spouse when what they need is meat from God. The substance of his love, the fullness of his relationship, the strength that only comes from him. The source of happiness and love and joy is not your spouse, it's God. It's Christ through his spirit. To live is what? Christ. To live is Christ, not Chris. To live is Jesus, not Gene. To live is the Savior, not your spouse. To live is the Messiah, not your mate. The source of love you crave, the meaty love, the deep love, the perfect love comes only from the perfect one. You damage your marriage when you live chapter 4, avoiding your interconnectedness to the church family. You're interconnected to the church family. You're not complete in and of yourself. You need the community of the church. You don't have all the spiritual gifts. I don't have all the spiritual gifts. We need to be equipped and taught and exhorted and confronted and loved in community. We need the various giftedness to actually become more like Christ. And you need to exercise your giftedness, serve, give, and fellowship with other Christians. You need that. You were never meant to be a solo saint a Robinson Crusoe Christian, a Lone Ranger Christian, you need the family. Interaction, interrelated, roped to one another like mountain climbers. You were saved to be a part of a community. Men need other men. Women need other women. Couples need other couples. Family need other families. Desperately. Ephesians 5 on marriage was written to a church that was in community. So these marriages are not in isolation, and that's described in Ephesians 4. You cannot live Ephesians 5 until you're embracing Ephesians 4. We can't compartmentalize like this. We're doing way too much of that. Let me tell you an illustration, and let me expand it enough where you get it. 
Does anybody know what a Swanson dinner is? A frozen dinner. You know what I'm talking about? A frozen dinner? The hungry man dinner. You've seen them there. Maybe you've never eaten one. God bless you. You are better off, okay? But they come out, and there's a tray, right? And there's the meat over here, the roll over here, the vegetables over here, the dessert over here. Everything's separated, compartmentalized. And sometimes we think, I go to church, everything's good in my life. When work is horrible, you're a terrible witness, your marriage is falling apart, well, hey, I'm good, I'm going to church. God does not look like you, look at you like you're a Swanson dinner. When God looks at you, He looks at you like a chicken pot pie. Everything's mixed together, and if the peas are rotten in the pie, everything's rotten. We can't compartmentalize. It's so vital that you understand that, that we are interconnected, and we need to not compartmentalize our lives, but you need desperately to be interrelated. Look at these verses out of chapter 4, verse 1. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling of which you have been called, with all humility, there it again, gentleness, patience, showing tolerance to for one another. Verse 3, being diligent, fighting for the unity, the oneness of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Look at chapter 4, verse 11. He gave some as pastor teachers to equip the saints, to build them up for the work of service, building the body of Christ. Verse 15, we're to be growing up in all aspects to Him together. Verse 16, according to the proper working of each individual part of the body of Christ. Some of you are livers, some of you are kidneys, some of you are hangnails, whatever causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. We need one another. Husband, wife, each one of you needs to be immersed in the local church in order for Ephesians 5 on marriage to work the way God intended. You and I have a desperate need for wisdom. Do you not have a desperate need for wisdom on how to love your spouse and how to love those friends and how to carry on a healthy relationship, how to be the husband or the wife that God wants you to be, to get that wisdom, we get it from God's Word, but to see how that wisdom is applied, lived out, and implemented, it is through God's Word, through God's people in the church. That's a requirement. It's not an option. It's not extra. It's not for the spiritual. It's not for the desperate. It's for every Christian. Prove it, Chris. Okay, I will. Titus chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Look at it. Older women, likewise, are to, verse 4, encourage. That word is train. To encourage, to train the young women to do what? To love their, what? Husbands. That's telling you right now that you need the influence of the church in your life in order to carry on your marriage. You need help from the church in relationships. One of the biggest damaging mistakes that couples make are couples who don't serve in the church. They don't have any ongoing fellowship, only random drive-bys. They don't receive any personal investment in their lives and receive no guidance in their marriage from the church body. I just proved to you from the Bible that you need the influence of older godly saints in your life. What are you going to do about it? I cannot tell you the years that we prayed for mentors to influence my life to influence Gene's life, and we're still, still talking to older people. Say, how would you do this best? We need that in our lives. Now let's leave chapter 5 for next week, but look at how you damage your marriage when you live chapter 6, elevating your children over your marriage. 
elevating your children over your marriage. Understand this. Notice the obvious truth here. Marriage is taught in chapter 5. It ends. It begins chapter 6 with children and fathers. In other words, family and parenting. What does Paul teach dads in Ephesians 6.4? He has three verses on children. Then he goes right to fathers, verse 4. Do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Marriage is before parenting. Marriage is where your children learn oneness. They learn uh, relationship conflict reconciliation. They learn the roles of men and women. They learn unity. They learn all those things from a marriage that functions correctly. Your marriage and your home are damaged when couples love their children more than they love each other. There's also damage when fathers don't take the lead in parenting and they leave it to their wives. Or Now remember, parenting is not educating your children, it is discipling your children, investing into them. And Paul puts that responsibility directly and firmly on the shoulders of men. You say, what he meant there when he said fathers? He meant parents. No, he didn't mean parents. He uses the word parents in verse 1. Well, what he meant to say was fathers and mothers. No, he uses those exact Greek terms in verse 2. When he says fathers in verse 4, you know what he means? Fathers! The biblical commands fathers to disciple, bring up your children, take the lead with discipline and instruction, correction and content, whacking and wisdom. Damage is done when husbands are passive and moms are aggressive. Damage is done when couples won't let go of their children to leave and cleave. Damage is done when wives love their kids more than they love their husband. Damage is done when a husband and wife live for themselves or for each other or for events or for their kids and not for Christ first. When it's family first, that doesn't always mean Christ first. Damage is done when parents don't enjoy their kids and have fun as a family. Damage is done when you criticize and complain about your spouse in front of the kids. Damage is done when you're on the phone watching TV or whatever when your spouse or kids are trying to talk to you. I could go on and on and on. That's what the pastor says when he runs out of material. But understand, (laughs) your marriage, your home are damaged when couples love their children more than they love each other. We need to stop doing damage to our relationships, particularly our marriages. Chapter 1, ignoring God's sovereign purpose for your marriage. It's for Him, to glorify Him. That's why you're there, to glorify Him. Chapter 2, to minimize your sinfulness and your desperate need for God's grace. Chapter 3, overlooking the incredible love of God to fill your life and finding your source there, not in your spouse. And then from that fullness you give to your spouse. Chapter 4, avoiding the interconnectedness of the church family. And chapter 6, elevating your children above your marriage. You say, Chris, how in the world can I make this happen? For the answer to that, you have to come back next week. And I'm telling you, it is specific. It is specific on what you need to do and where you draw your strength from. So let's take this home. Letter A. Godly marriages will not work biblically if you ignore the commands of the New Testament. You cannot live Ephesians 5 without pursuing chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6. You cannot be in God's will in your marriage if you are continually dissing, avoiding, ignoring, disobeying the basic commands of the New Testament. 
Get this. You are commanded to make disciples. That means that you are teaching them to obey all that Christ has commanded you. That assumes that you're seeking to obey all that Christ commands you. You're to use your giftedness in ministry, fellowship with over 41 another's, interacting with one another. You're to give sacrificially. You're to share the gospel. You're to pray for the saints. You're to love people. That means to sacrifice for them in the body. Then in marriage, you're to cherish your spouse. You're to practice oneness. That means shared finances, shared activities, shared hearts. Deep listening, regular physical intimacy, plus you're called to serve Christ, show off Christ, and share Christ as a couple and as individuals and as friends. Damage occurs if you don't follow Christ through the regular obedience to His Word. Not perfectly. No one will till heaven. Progressively. Not exactness, but not excusive. People go, well, I just, I got too much to worry about. No, don't excuse your disobedience. Don't excuse your lack of obedience. Christ-like marriage can only be lived out in the context of following Christ as your master. Remember, He did everything for you. He saved you. He is Lord. You follow Him. He's the master and you are the slave. To experience His power, grace, and love in marriage, you need to submit to Christ as Lord. Your marriage is like an old watch. Remember old watches? This is a long time ago. You used to wind them. And they had like 25 gears in there. Remember that? 25 gears. One of those gears goes south. Just one. Wrecks the whole watch, doesn't it? That's like the commands of Scripture. All those little gears. You intentionally disobey in one area and refuse to repent. Refuse to deal with that. It's going gonna, it's gonna to freeze up your watch. Your marriage watch. Your marriage. Those commands are to be obeyed. Never perfectly, but with a heart that says, I want to follow him in everything he says. You will not enjoy the blessings of Christ in marriage when the rest of your life is disobedient in Scripture. Again, chicken pot pie, not Swanson dinner. Even merely ignoring the word, when we follow Christ in marriage, it means we follow Christ in everything. Never perfectly, but our desire and our heart is to obey the teaching of Scripture. Letter B. Godly marriage will not work biblically when a spouse waits for their mate to obey the Bible. Do not wait. 1 Peter 3, 1-7, don't wait for them to obey. You obey the Word. Regardless of what your spouse does, it says in the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands so that if any of your husbands are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. Don't wait. Verse 7, you husbands, in the same way, obey. Don't wait to obey. Live with their wives in an understanding way. You serve Christ as master, as God. Never wait. Obey Him first. Especially if you have a difficult spouse. So that they might see and you show them what it's like to be born again, to follow Christ. To know His power and blessing. Let her see. Godly marriage will not work biblically when Christ is not first over family. Again, 
Revelation chapter 2, verse 4, but I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Seek first his kingdom, Matthew 6. Luke 9, take up your cross, which means die. Die to self. You cannot be empowered by the Spirit of God in your marriage unless Christ is first in your heart. Jesus is the one who designed marriage. Jesus is the architect. Christ alone can make marriage work. It won't happen unless you're following Him over your kids, over your parents, over your friends, over your spouse. You must submit to His will in order for you to see Him work in your marriage. You cannot love people more than Christ. You cannot love TV, your phone, video games... Entertainment more than Christ for Christ to glorify Himself in and through your marriage. Letter D. Godly marriage will not work biblically unless you follow God's Word as a map. As a map. As a guidebook. The Bible needs to be talked about, prayed over, applied, used for decisions, submitted to, in order for your marriage to experience what Christ promises. And He promises marriage is supposed to be the grace of life. Listen, you know what that is? It means God's grace in this life. It means that you are blessed in this life, but that does not mean that the grace of life is easy. It doesn't mean that you don't have to work at it, that you can somehow disobedience just so that you can be married and somehow have this bliss. You've got to work at your marriage. You need to make sure that you're seeking God's Word in every area of your life. The screaming couple needs to make progress in communicating biblically and to take those principles and say, I'm going to live those principles even when I don't feel like it and start communicating. You'll find that it'll be unnatural and then it'll become a part of you. That's in friendships. That's in relationships. The in-debt couple, the ones that are just totally maxed out on every credit card, you got thousands. You need to follow God's word on finances. The Proverbs are so clear. If we would just follow the truths of that, live within our means, we can get out of debt. It's probably the number one or number two issue of arguments in every marriage. The distant couple needs to obey God's word when it comes to oneness in Christ. The word of God, singles, widows, needs to be your guide, your answer, your map, your guidebook in any relationship and in marriage. It can't just be once a week. We need to ratchet back some of the things that are taking up our time so we can get back into God's Word and back into prayer and begin to deal with one another in a way that glorifies God. Letter E. Your godly marriage will not work biblically unless you're in Christ. Everyone is dead in sin unless Christ has made you alive. So the question is, are you internally transformed? If you are, you're going to want to obey Him. You're going to want to follow Him. You're going to want to please Him. You're going to have a new nature that hates sin and a new heart that wants to obey. And if not, listen, bye! You're putting your stuff away! 
If not, then cry out to Christ to give you a new heart. Say, I've been playing church for years. I walked an aisle, I prayed a prayer, but there's no evidence that he's in me or through me. You need to pray. Say, God, change my heart. For the sake of my spouse, for the sake of my witness, for the sake of obedience, change my heart so that I can depend on you. I will turn from my sin because only Christ can make relationships work. Only Christ can transform a damaged marriage. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this day. We pray that it might be used to draw some to yourself, but more importantly, even, Father, that you would be glorified in the relationships that are here, whether friendships, brothers and sisters, or marriages, that you would be glorified, that you would be honored, that it would be about you and how we speak to one another and how we treat each other, that it would be you, our central, doing things your way. For those couples that are functioning this way, just let them be encouraged. For those that are falling by the wayside, Father, charge them up, stir them up so that they might walk in obedience to your truth. We'll give you all the glory for what you do. We thank you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening today. Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast, and a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at media.faith-bible.net. And if you would, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. Thanks, and have a great day.